Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So, I'm sitting here with a copy of Storm Before Calm. So I thought it might be a good idea to maybe have a little chat about that album, similar to the one about spirit the earth the flame and a little bit similar to the one about Imrama which is buried in one of the podcasts as I widely think that this is one of the most misunderstood primordial albums if that's the right phrase maybe not misunderstood maybe underrated and even by the band underrated all things considered so what I want to do is maybe um just take a little look at the record around what surrounded it, about the very strange circumstances with its recording, the songwriting process, the sound itself, and some of the songs. So let's take a little look. So the first thing to consider is that the first stage of the band is really our formation up until Imrama, those first couple of years. And then there was a few years where we were sort of in the wilderness and came back with Journey's End. But following Journey's End with the Burning Season EP in 99, you can sort of count this, I suppose, second quarter of the band's creative output with Spirit the Earth, the Flame, the Burning Season, and this album, Storm Before Camp. So in a way, it's the sort of sister album to Spirit the Earth, the Flame, but yet a little bit different. It almost sounds to me like it could be the album before Spirit the Earth the Flame. It's a very strange circumstance is that for Spirit the Earth the Flame we signed with Hammerheart Records and Hammerheart Records was really on the way up but due to some of some problems, some issues, some business practices, some bad luck, a lot of reasons. By the time we get to Storm Before Calm um, the situation with the label is kind of at a very tenuous strained relationship between us and them uh, and so and I think between them and lots of other people who were working with them we could say the label was just about to disappear or at least disappear as we knew it so against the backdrop of that uncertainty we went to record Storm Before Calm and we 
had recorded in Academy Studios in Yorkshire in the north of England for the f- previous few records and it had been really, despite being a miserable and pretty gloomy place, had been a studio we really liked and Mags, who I talked about before, the engineer, the guy who made Paradise Lost, Madame Bride, Cradle of Filth, etc., who had been a really influential character in the early stages of Primordial um, and I can't overstate that enough what a inspiration he was, I think. Um, we wanted to go back and make the album in Yorkshire in Academy Studios. But what we didn't realize is that the old Academy Studios, which had this incredible atmosphere, this strange old live room in the basement and um, where you could record proper drums and have all the amps and, you know, this old kind of strange, vaguely horror movie-esque video screen from downstairs to upstairs and a living quarters and all this kind of stuff, uh, that was gone. And Academy Studios, as we knew it, was not there anymore. And um, the original owner, Keith Appleton, had more or less moved it to his to two rooms in his back garden at the time, uh, like two renovated out rooms. So there was no more live room. The control room was just a very small room, and it was our first experience recording digitally. We'd always recorded analog and to tape with big amps and lots of noise, and it was the first time that we'd ever really encountered Pro Tools. Um, And it was clear as soon as we got there that the ambition we had with the record sonically was not going to work out as we had expected. And for the first time, we had to... I think the album has a kind of strangely early digital sound. Um, It's not a bad sound, but it's missing some of the organic qualities of the previous album. It's missing some of the lead and tonal textures. It's missing some of the bottom end. And that was really because we were not entirely sure what we were doing as a band. The drum room itself was not really a drum room and just more or less passed as a day room. But of course, we weren't using click tracks or anything like this. And we weren't really a band who quantized much or who ever messed with the early Cubase and Pro Tools systems. Um, But we just didn't really know. And so when you hear Heretic's Age, the first song, I think to people who understand recording technology, they can hear that something is different from that album, from the album previous to that. it's a much tauter, tighter, more digital sound. And we really didn't understand the parameters of what we were dealing with. Uh, And this put a kind of strange cast on the record. The songs themselves, um, in a strange way, as I said, feel like they existed before Spirit of the Earth, The Flame. To me, it sounds like a more direct, straightforward, harder metal album. Even looking at it, songs like What Sleep Within, and Fallen to Ruin seem like more straightforward epic metal songs. And I think maybe we got more, got more, acquired more fans in the epic traditional metal era from these two albums. Um, We'd moved slightly away from some of the miserablest, more vaguely gothic touches of Journey's End. Um, Sons of the Morrigan is just a 4-4 stomping rock song. The whole feel generally cast to the pyre aside which is a pretty dark song and um, feels less 
progressive. It feels less like a step forward, to me at least, than Spirit the Earth the Flame did from Journey's End in the burning season. Now, may they, maybe that's because my opinion of it is slightly tarnished because of the wranglings and problems we went through. Um, realistically, we didn't... We started recording the record um, and there was no advance, there was no money, and we worked pretty much for the first two weeks on the good nature of Keith and Mags at Academy. I, for example, had to stay with Sean from My Dying Bride, drummer at the time, who very graciously um, just came down and basically offered us not only his drums, but opened his house to us and allowed us to stay there. So I'm eternally grateful to Sean and My Dying Bride and all the help that they gave us in making the record. It really wouldn't have happened without Sean, um, who I didn't see for years and met again at, down, or not at Download, Download, yeah, sure. Damnation. Anyway, just as an aside, and I think that you can hear tonally some of my Dying Bride albums were also recorded in that room, and there's a similar sort of uh, feeling to those records as maybe to Storm Before Cam, only we were a bit more aggressive in our in some of the songwriting, in that it's missing what I would call a natural bass end, a natural bottom end. Um, I don't think it sounds bad, and oddly enough, there are people who love it more than any records. There are people for whom it's their favorite record, uh, which I am happy to acknowledge, but I find a little bit curious, but maybe it just depends on when you heard it. Um, so we recorded in this very strange, almost sterile environment. We were, I remember staying in a hotel down the corner, down the road, a practically empty hotel. It was like something out of The Shining, where we just literally had a whole entire wing to ourselves. And um, personally, I was in the midst of some ridiculous bout with insomnia and staying up all night and made the album very odd for me in that I've seemed to feel like I recorded it in a, in a haze, in a daze. I don't really remember much of the vocals um, or much of the tracking. It feels to me like what I wanted to say with this record with some of the... I wanted the record to be more aggressive. I wanted the lyrics to be more forceful, um, more empowering, a bit less... Um, well, I'm not going to call, call them defeatist, but a little bit less tragic, a little bit, a little bit less dwelling on the negative side of human agency. I wanted to celebrate the rebel and man, this, this, the heretic's age... I wanted to say some rather more brutal and blunt and straightforward things, some messages of empowerment. And I think that's very much part of that spirit of that early 2000s pagan metal, pagan black metal, whatever we were. There was a, I, I think there was a genuine feeling, an erring, a stirring of sort of cultural optimism, maybe, maybe, in the scene at the time. There were other bands moving in that direction. And... I didn't only want to imbue the music with a feeling of defeat, um, which maybe came back to the band, for example, with Exile Among the Ruins. I wanted it. I wanted there to be fist in the air moments. There's also Sons of the Morrigan. Is um, I very rarely referenced Irish mythology, cultural mythology. Well, not cultural mythology, but you know, um, folkloric mythology. Uh, it was just something I knew was stepping away from from the first album but Sons of the Morrigan 
Um, the Morrigan was a Celtic goddess. Um, I wanted to try and imbue, to use, I use the word imbue three times now or something. I wanted to take some elements of mythological folklore and apply them in a modern context but give them a bit of rabble rousing I think at the time I was severely enthralled to bands like Man of War and Virgin Steel and epic traditional metal Manila Road Sirith Ungol all this kind of stuff and I wanted to almost raise a fist of a fist in defiance with some of the lyrical themes but the album wasn't easy to record it definitely was not um, there was nothing easy about it halfway through the project was nearly pulled completely because the nothing had been paid for. And it was only because of the good nature of, as I said, Mags and Keith, that the album proceeded and that we were allowed to continue because they were within their rights to pull the plug on the entire thing. And this sort of cast the atmosphere, cast a shadow over the record for all of us because we continued. In fact, I stayed on in Bradford for longer than everyone else uh, for the mixing. Um, I seem to remember doing that on my own, which was quite strange. Um, people were beginning new jobs and returning home. We were taking the ferry back and forth to Ireland. So there was this big, long, gloomy journey. I just remember every day it being rainy and cold and you would go around to the co-op and there'd be you'd witness some scene of domestic violence. And we're in it. It wasn't a great atmosphere around the record. It wasn't a great feeling surrounding the record um, the, because of the area and the sterile environment and I think it comes through on the record to me it's missing a little bit of magic a little bit of sparkle some maybe some of the harmonies some of the melodies are not quite to me what they could be although perhaps to a listener for whom this is their favorite or one of their favorite primordial albums they don't hear that which is totally fine um the hosting of the She is an interesting song. It's uh, one of, I think, our most adventurous pieces of music. We we said a William Butler Yeats poem um, to music, and I think it struck a really interesting tone. And we pl- tried to play it once live, but it didn't work. But it's the kind of thing that I always imagined could be used in a, a film or a biopic of Yeats or something. But I suppose that was back then when I imagined that Primordial might be ushered into some other artistic circles in Ireland and not really ostracized as a heavy metal band with no artistic worth as recognized by our state or at least our arts council but that's a different podcast I guess Um, but I still think it's a really interesting song but to me the album feels a little bit unfinished and what especially compounds this feeling is that the artwork was terrible the artwork was awful. We went to, we went to the, um, we went to the offices of Hamart with a few ideas, but they didn't work. And the execution of the original cover is poor. It looks it's early, early Photoshop mess. It looks like a, it looks like a late nineties, early two thousands. Um, what's this? awful German label that used to have all those Photoshop covers. You know the one I mean. It looked almost like one of those and that was not what we intended at all. In fact, if you have the reissue then that is quite beautiful and I think fits the music far more and is 
my, at least for me, the definitive definitive version of the record. But it looked awful. Um, the band photos were taken without Simon for some reason. We were under pressure. Even they didn't look that great. The printing and the inlay is too glossy. The photos don't really work. The liner notes are filled with spelling mistakes. There's just a general air of a general air of resignation to um, an unprofessionality which surrounds the album that for me will always slightly cast it in the shadows of the primordial artistic canon if you want to call it that not that I think the songs are bad and listening back I recently I enjoyed it much more than I remembered the time previous and like I said we'll respect people who do love the love the record because it has qualities but like I said it was the first time that we had recorded digitally and I think you can hear that I think a lot of bands were struggling with that in the early 2000s because studios were changing people were getting to grips with the Pro Tools technology and there were many people who sang its praises there were many people who eulogized it as this is the way forward and it was it took over everything but for many musicians who were used to the home of amps and um, splicing on tape and the noise and the feeling of standing in a room together now that was completely gone you couldn't even get feedback in the room you couldn't even get any noise or sense of being in a band playing and I think that that is an unfortunate consequence of us not really understanding the technology that we came to understand for the albums afterwards and were insistent upon returning to some of those um, how shall we say to so we refute you know could refute a few of the pro t pro tools parameters restrictions placed upon us uh, and it was part of the deal that was struck when we moved to Metal Blade that we could reissue the albums and finally we were able to give them let's call them the burial that they deserved and give them the proper artwork the artwork I found in a thrift shop in Edinburgh in an old bookstore it's an old I think they're lithographic I'm not sure if that's the right word uh, prints from from the late 19th century and it's just a Dunbar Castle, which I think is off the in Scotland, and it's just of lightning striking, and a, a boat um, crashing on the rocks of Dunbar Castle seemed to be way more fitting than anything else. As you can hear in the middle of Fallen to Ruin, this you know, Father, why have you forsaken me? Whatever this this, which I, oddly enough reminds me of the start of Once Upon the Cross by Deicide when I hear it now which I wasn't thinking of at the time we were trying to move a few more atmospherics a few more kind of visual interpretations of the music trying to add a few different things personally with the vocals it was one of the first albums where I began to use this more brutal harsh singing voice not a growl not a scream not a clean singing voice like you'd hear on God's the Godless or Soul Must Sleep but a much more aggressive tone and I think it's because I'd been playing in a covers band at the time doing Judas Priest and Wasp and Dio and of course that stuff at the time was well beyond me and beyond my capabilities but I was learning from it and one of those things I was learning from it was forcing tone this throat voice 
not a head voice, but or what I would call a throat voice. So it was much less nasal. It was much less head, uh, much less of a head voice. And it was coming from a lower place and it, you were forcing it out. And it was um, something you can hear and fall into ruin the verses. And it was harder to do. And it took a lot out of my voice, but it's almost the way I sing all of the time now. But at the time, it was a new skill. It was something else to learn. It was trying to be more aggressive, more brutal, more almost barbarian sounding. And that's what I was trying to get into these new lyrics, this feeling of epic forcefulness. Um, as for the rest of the songwriting, What Sleeps Within is a standard enough black metal song that oddly enough reminds me of a song called Ingraciousness, which is a bonus live track on our demo. Um, quite a straight black metal sort of song. Cast of the Pyre is one of the most interesting songs with the strange kind of phone call. It was meant to be something like a phone call from not quite death row, but something like this, like an old canister recording of a voice from the 1920s. And the lyrics are supremely miserablest and very gloomy and dark and pessimistic um, and that's probably the darkest moment on the record um, Sun's First Rays is really nice acoustic that Kieran wrote Sun's the Morrigan like I said a 4-4 rock stomp our Heretic's Age is really strange because it sounds almost vaguely not out of time but there's most definitely the riff is in 4-4 and the drums are in 6-8 I think or so. I'm not sure Simon would have to explain it to me the one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six, six, rashers and sausages, rashers and sausages. That you can hear that timing is in Sons of the Morgan, the do no 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 one two three four five six one two three four five six. And this became like a signature motif, a time signature of primordial, the six eight timing. Um Simon would explain it or explain it to me like rashers and sausages. Just say that. And then go one two three four five six one two three four five six, uh, which became, I suppose, our Celtic cadence, as somebody called it in a review. Don't know whether I agree with that, but this is how this is the time signature that slowly started to become associated with elements of Primordia. You can hear it in Children of the Harvest. Um, you can hear it in On Ashdor Dernach from Journey's End, if I'm not incorrect. You can hear it all over the place, and it was a quite un-black metal way of playing black metal, if it was black metal. So overall, it's an interesting and odd record that I don't think got the respect or the TLC, the tender love and care that it deserved at the time. It almost didn't happen at all, but for the grace of My Dying Bride and Academy Studios, for which, as I said, we will be always grateful. Um, but there's something of the ugly stepchild about it that, I, that doesn't sit quite well with me that I maybe haven't quite given it the uh, respect or attention it deserves. But there it is. It's an integral part of that middle primordial canon, that middle part of our creativity where we were learning. We were also first, we were starting to go out and tour and starting to learn things about stagecraft. And I was learning about how my voice was changing, about monitors and about trying to take a step up from being this sort of unprofessional band in the 90s who'd barely ever played with monitors on a proper stage or with light. So it's part of a learning curve. Um, and definitely it was a learning curve with the recording methods used. So 
that's a kind of an overview of where I would sit with Storm Before Cam. A strong album, but a fundamentally flawed record. Not one of my favorite primordial records, but definitely has some of my favorite moments. And I have to admit, still get a super great kick out of playing Sons of the Morgan live when it kicks into that 4-4 beat. It seems like the archetypal, I don't know what you would call it, Irish black rock song or something like this, you know. You know, you know, you know. I've got to stop saying that. Okay, that is the bonus podcast, the bonus commentary. A little discussion on the album Storm Before Calm. If you don't know it, go and take a listen. That's it, over and out. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.